This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Jason Schulman, and this is New Books in Australian and New Zealand Studies. My guest today on the podcast is Joelle Gerges. She's a climate scientist and writer from the University of Melbourne. She's here to talk about her new book, Sunburnt Country, The History and Future of Climate Change in Australia. It's published by Melbourne University Publishing in April 2018. Joelle, welcome to the show. Hi, Jason. Well, it's great to have you on, Joelle. So let's start, you know, how did you get interested in the topic of climate in Australia? Well, I, growing up in a country like Australia, we have a lot of a lot of climate extremes. And I remember this one summer in particular where we had a really big bushfire close to where I was living in Sydney and there was ash falling throughout my suburb. And it really got me thinking about why the climate does what it does in a, in a place like Australia. And so I then went on to do a PhD looking at El Nino, which is the largest source of year-to-year variability on the planet aside from the seasons. And so I wanted to really get an understanding of what is it exactly that drives climate variability in our region. And that sort of led me on a really long journey that I'm still on, actually. One part of your journey was leading um, what's called the SEARCH project. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was? Yes. Uh, so the SEARCH project stands for the Southeastern Australian Recent Climate History Project. And really what it did is try to draw together people from the sciences and the humanities to try and reconstruct our climate history for the first time. And it hadn't really been done before. It'd been done just in terms of a handful of research projects here and there. But this was a a really large initiative that involved 10 different organisations running from the Australian Bureau of Meteorology and our Murray-Darling Basin Authority, which is the organisation that um, manages Australia's food bowl, as well as uh, the National Library of Australia and a range of um, really eminent um, state libraries, which which house uh, Australia's archives uh, in terms of historical documents and the like. And so what I did is I, I gathered a, a group of people together and we actually had a go at trying to bring together historical documents, also records from the natural world, so things like tree rings and corals and ice cores from the region, and um, and also early instrumental weather records, so records that were kept uh, by first settlers when they first arrived in Australia. And so we used this approach to try and reconstruct uh, our climate history to get a sense of whether things like droughts and floods um are they getting worse? What are they like? We, we didn't really know what actually had happened in the period before 1900 where our official weather records begin. So that's really interesting. So kind of the first Australians to come uh, from Europe, what, what did they find about uh, Australia's climate? 
Well, they were really surprised actually to see uh, just how variable it could be. So coming from England where the climate is a lot milder than what we experience here in Australia, uh, they were really surprised to see that it could go from torrential downpours where they actually got flooded out in 1788 when the first fleet arrived. And then it went into a heat wave where they were seeing temperatures over 40 degrees Celsius and they saw birds and bats falling out of the sky from heat stress. And this is something that they hadn't experienced in a, in a country like England where it'd be very rare indeed to see temperatures over the sort of 30 degree mark. So um, it was very er- erratic and extreme compared to what they were used to in England. So above the first fleet, we actually had the first weather recorders. Is that right? Yes, that was one of the really interesting things that I uh, came across is that uh, aboard the uh, first fleet, there was actually there were people that were taking weather observations on that eight-month voyage from England to Australia. And so every day they were recording temperature and air pressure readings, and that allowed us to see what the climate, what the weather was doing day by day as they traversed the planet all the way down. Uh, It took eight months, which is a really long time if you think about it. Um, And then when they arrived in uh, Sydney Cove eventually in the January of 1788, they were... yeah, a little bit surprised by what they were met with. I guess the you know the next question is why is Australia's climate so variable, so extreme, uh, and can we learn from the experience of what happens hundreds of years ago, kind of to extrapolate to today? Well, the first part of that question is is talking about why is Australia so extreme, and so we're quite a unique place in that we sit in one of the, the subtropical desert belts of the world. So nearly all the great deserts of the world are found within these zones of high pressure that sit around 20 to 30 degrees south and north of the equator. And so, just in terms of where we lie on the planet, um, so we sit underneath this high pressure band. Where, so that makes us actually the driest inhabited continent on Earth. And so that's the sort of background that we have to deal with. And then Australia's climate is very influenced by a range of different uh, factors that uh, are related to our position near the uh, the Southern Ocean, the Indian Ocean, and in particular, the Pacific Ocean. And the Pacific Ocean is home to the um, El Nino Southern Oscillation uh, Mode. And so El Nino, as, as many of your readers, uh, many of your listeners would, would know, is, is a, a really dominant source of um, climate variability not only here in Australia, but also in South America, in North America and, and, and other places throughout the world. And so every um, every year, Australia is actually having a bit of a tug of war between these tropical influences and more polar influences from Antarctica. And then we have also Indian Ocean uh, variability that, that is laid into all of this as well. So we are a really variable continent in terms of our climate, but it, it has to do also where we sit on the planet. How have Australians, you know, in the past acclimated to this, you know, erratic climate? Do they learn anything from Aboriginal Australians? <laughs> well, that's an interesting question. I guess uh, Indigenous Australians have always been really uh, very attuned to these uh biological and you know ecological cues in the environment so the arrival of certain birds into the landscape or the flowering of certain trees or, or bush food that becomes available as the seasons begin to shift uh, and this has been recorded through oral history which is passed down from generation to generation through um over time whereas the um and so when the uh the, the Europeans arrived in Australia obviously there was a language barrier and so a lot of that information about uh, how Indigenous people had learned to deal with um, our erratic climate was not really um, was not really passed on and uh, and so 
the Europeans had to learn the hard way, really, about how to try and adapt to such a harsh climate. And it took a lot of time. And to be honest, in some ways, we haven't really adapted. We still are trying to, uh, you know, uh, generate agriculture in a a country which is mostly arid or semi-arid. And so that means that we receive less than 50 centimetres of rainfall every year, which is not a lot. Uh, and, and we see we, we're a really dry uh, continent. Um, and so that requires a lot of inputs like irrigation uh, into trying to keep agricultural agriculture afloat. But with um, climate change, this is posing really huge uh, challenges to to our uh, to our industries. And so we're actually considered the most vulnerable country um, in the developed world when it comes to climate change. And so we actually have a, a range of really unique challenges ahead of us. Let's talk about sort of what's going on now and, and into the future. What does the research tell us about you know the droughts? You said the dryness, the heat. Uh, are things getting worse? Well, Australia's climate has actually increased by one degree since uh, 1900. And most of that warming, about 0.7 of that warming, has actually occurred since 1950. And so all of our weather and climate is now occurring on the background of a warming planet. And so what that means is that uh, while we've always experienced droughts in Australia, our droughts are now becoming even hotter than they were in the past. And so this this is the kind of thing that is starting to concern a lot of Australians uh, in terms of what we can expect in the future. Our climate is heating up. We're seeing more heat waves, uh, both on the land and also in um, in our oceans. Uh, some people might be aware that the Great Barrier Reef, which is the largest living organism on the planet, actually 50% of the Great Barrier Reef corals are now dead as a result of underwater heat waves as the planet continues to warm. So alarm bells are now going off in Australia in terms of the sorts of climate impacts that we might not have expected to see until the middle of the century are now starting to play out right now. And also on the land, we've seen heat waves um, that are just we're breaking records effectively every season uh, here in Australia. So it, it really is something that is, is, is gathering a lot of um, concern and attention within the scientific community, but also just everyday Australians who are, are really starting to realise that things are changing. And um, I guess the... What I tried to do with Sunburnt Country is to try and get a, a longer-term perspective of what droughts and floods were like in the past, but also what temperature conditions were like in Australia. As I said before, um, our official weather records begin in 1900, and what I've been able to do in this book is take this um, year by year back a thousand years, but also I look at deeper time records through geologic records to get a sense of, well, is what we're experiencing just natural variability or are we now dealing with climate change as well? So it's, there's a lot to untangle there and I try and do that in the book. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, kind of the, the threat that climate change poses to, um, you know, farmers and, and, and export industries. Do most Australians who um, you know, live off the land, let's say, in, in major cities, uh, will they feel the climate extremes uh, in similar ways? Well, people that live in cities will generally experience uh, things like extreme heat. So um, in parts of Sydney, for example, which is Australia's largest city, uh, last summer we actually experienced um, temperatures of 47 degrees Celsius in Western Sydney, which was the, the warmest uh, summer temperatures recorded in the Sydney Basin, which is extraordinary. So we're looking really effectively at a future with um, 50 degree summer temperatures, things like water shortages starting to come into play. So we've got desalinization plants now um, 
operational in most of Australia's capital cities uh, to try and, and deal with that because we had this really major 13-year uh, drought called the Millennium Drought, um, which lasted from 1997 to 2009. And that was a real wake-up call for, for people uh, in terms of realising that during that drought, we, you know, people were in, in places like Melbourne were showering with buckets to try and, and collect that, that uh, water and then water their gardens or wash their cars and things like that. So water shortages were actually a really big um, issue at the time. And so, um, really, you know, water is, is the thing that, that really uh, impacts Australians, uh, but also heat as well. And people will feel that through their electricity bills in terms of having to run air conditioners for longer, but also just realising that um, our landscapes are starting to change also as a result of climate change. So what do we need to do to, you know, address the situation? Is there the political will necessary to, to change uh, human behaviour? Well, that's a really tricky that's the trickiest part of this whole equation, unfortunately. So the really exciting thing is that all the technology we need to turn this around already exists. It's all there. And in a country like Australia, you'd think that we're drenched in sunshine, but only 3% of Australia's electricity is generated by solar, which is an enormous opportunity, really, for, for us to, to get on board and to really change the way that we uh, power our nation. Uh, in terms of the political will, uh, well, that's really difficult. And I, and I know that um, also listeners in the, in the US also have uh, challenges in that area as well. So in the very conservative side of politics would like to see us continue to develop our coal resources, which are vast in Australia. But as we start to see these really uh, extreme aspects of the climate play out, like I said, 50% of the Great Barrier Reef died in the last two years. Uh, I mean, that that's uh, 64,000 people in Australia rely on the reef for work in terms of their jobs. Uh, and it's also worth $6.5 billion in terms of the Australian economy. So we need to have a think about the type of future that we want to live in um, and what sort of future we want to leave for the next generation. And so I think it really does come down to people realising that it's it's really important that this is not the time to switch off. This is the time to really take a stand for the things that really matter and realising that your vote really does count. And I think that's really important to get behind the political leaders that really want to see uh, change. And we can see that this clean energy revolution is sweeping the world. This is not something that we're, by any stretch, going to be leaders in. Um, places like Europe and elsewhere are already leading the charge in terms of uh, making the most of the opportunities that are there. So I, I think sometimes with climate change, we can frame it in a very pessimistic light. And there are a lot of very serious impacts that are going to play out and are playing out. But I also think it's an opportunity to really um, to really shape the type of future we want to live in. So I actually think we're witnessing a pivotal moment in human history and, and one that really is an invitation to exercise your power as a citizen but also as a consumer in terms of helping safeguard life on Earth. The opportunities are there. Joelle, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today. That's Joelle Gerges. She's a climate scientist and writer from the University of Melbourne. Her new book is Sunburnt Country, The History and Future of Climate Change in Australia. It's published by Melbourne University Publishing in April 2018. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>